The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Here we go. A warm welcome. The invitation is to sit back and find a comfortable posture. Maybe check in what supports you today. Moving back and forth over your hip points. Checking in with your spine, the position of your head. Softening your eyes and your tongue. Perhaps taking a moment to take a more intentional breath or two. Settling in to the body. Noticing any energy, residual energy or tiredness from whatever your previous activity was. And noticing too Any residual tone, attitude in the heart and mind. And relaxing, allowing, acknowledging that. Before intentionally bringing awareness to the forefront. Establishing a sense of awareness here. This. Now. If it's helpful to anchor the attention in a particular way. Inviting whatever primary object of attention works for you to settle your mind, each breath, each sound, sensation, just for a few moments, settling. Resting.
And as the mind begins to feel present, even just for a moment, opening the attention, lensing the attention outwards to include all that arises and passes in this moment. Acknowledging emotion as emotion. Mental activity as an event in the moment. And relaxing. Allowing what is present just to flow through. Noticing if there is surface chatter in the mind. And inviting the attention to deepen, to fuse through the body, relax through any layers of surface level tension, conversation. and rest in the felt experience. Whatever is present,
Thank you for your practice. So, good morning. Welcome again. Nice to see each of you. And maybe just to put our voices in the room very briefly. But before we even do that, the invitation is to take in each other person in this Zoom room, whether a tile or an actual image video, and send them a little pulse of goodwill, friendliness, metta. Could you repeat that? I didn't. I had to turn up my volume. I'm sorry. The the invitation is in silence to spend a moment or two sending a pulse of goodwill, oh. metta, to everyone else in the Zoom room. So, um, just to take each other in for a minute, wishing your fellow practitioners well. And trusting that as you're doing that, you're receiving those good wishes from each other person in the room. Thank you for that. And as you like, maybe just unmute and say where you're zooming in from. And maybe for the benefit of people who aren't here today, say your name because they'll only hear audio. And I'm Dawn. I'm zooming in from Santa Cruz. Really happy to be with each of you. Anyone else? I'm Carol. Um, I'm in Oakland, California. Hi, Carol. Mary Ann, Sonora, California. I'm Stuart. Yeah. I'm Stuart calling from Scotland. Hello. Lenika from Menlo Park, California. Hi, Lenika. Deborah from um, Philadelphia. Welcome, Deborah from Philadelphia. And I suspect anyone else online right now um, might be driving or otherwise occupied and unable to connect. So really happy to have all of you here. And... Um, this morning, I'm going to offer the third of three talks on careless versus wise or profound attention. Ayonisa Manasikara. Ayoniso means careless or not wise. Manasikara means attention. And Yoniso Manasikara, profound, wise attending. And I'm going to start with an opening story today. Give me a moment here. My throat is a little dry. So this opening story happens in a Sangha in conflict back in the Buddha's day, back in ancient India. There was <clears throat> this group of bhikkhus, monks, known as the Kosambians, and they're quite notorious in the suttas. Pretty much any time you hear about them, they're arguing, they're in conflict, they're getting into trouble. So I think of them as sort of the bad boys of early Buddhist Sangha. And in this case, someone from that Sangha approached the Buddha himself and asked him to intervene in the conflict out of compassion. So the Buddha travels by foot and goes to visit these um, Kosambians. 
And it said that they were vociferously arguing amongst themselves, using their words as verbal daggers. So you get the sense, like it wasn't pretty, right? And so the Buddha tries three times to settle them, to intervene. And they are so caught up in their argumentation that they basically are ignoring the Buddha himself and continuing, right? If you can imagine. So at the end of that unsuccessful intervention, shall we say, the Buddha recites a sort of verse, and this is common in the early suttas. Can you guys still hear me? I've got a truck in the background. Okay. Um, and he says, before he leaves, when many voices shout at once, no, none considers himself a fool. Though the community is being split, none thinks themselves at fault. They have forgotten thoughtful speech and they talk obsessed by words alone. Uncurbed, they yell at will and none knows what leads them to act. In other words, they're thoughtless, careless. And then there's a very famous teaching that he recites. Many of you have heard this. It comes from the Dhammapada, from Dichotomies. Chapter 1, he abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying on like this, hatred does not end. She abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those not carrying on like this, hatred ends. For hatred never ends through hatred. By non Hate alone does it end. This is the ancient and natural law. So, then he puts his robe over his shoulder and he wanders off to visit communities that are more receptive to practice, more receptive to teaching. But I wanted to name this because it talks about how easily this careless attention, this getting caught up in views, opinions, can lead to and escalate to resentment, hostility, hatred, needing to be right. And it becomes this kind of comparison and competition roller coaster. You know, one can imagine some of these people were on fairly friendly terms, at least some of the time. They ate together, they lived together, but they got caught up hooked, right? So this hooked on one's own opinions is known as fixed views. Fixed views in the Buddha's lexicon of teachings. And these fixed views are pretty important. They're based on this careless attention or sometimes speculative kinds of ways of thinking. And they create a kind of attachment that tends to build strife in communities, even in families. I'll give another example. This is also kind of poetic. This comes from the Atakavaga, the Book of Eights. And um, give me a moment to find it. 
And in this teaching, it's entitled The Shorter Discourse on the Dead End. The Dead End. Isn't that a succinct way of thinking about how views, speculative views being entrenched can be in relationship or in practice? And this questioner is asking, each abiding in their own views, many experts quarrel claiming, knowing this, I understand, or knowing that, you are wrong. Quarreling, they argue, claiming each other are unskillful and a fool. If each of them are experts, which of their attitudes and views is true? That's a reasonable question, right? Who's right? All these people are claiming to be right, diametrically opposed. The Buddha basically answers, if not by approving an opponent's view, one becomes a fool, then all who are stuck in their views are fools, deficient of wisdom. In other words, this is a dead end, right? Everybody ends up being a fool in the other's eyes. And instead, he says, if they are cleansed, if they have wisdom, skill, and intelligence, then they would recognize that no one else is deficient The Buddha then goes on to say, I don't say this is the truth. However, what is he saying? And what is the truth? And what he's pointing to is that the Buddha is not existing in the world of concepts, of speculation, of argument, but rather, what's arising right now? Where's the suffering right now? Where's the peace right now? He goes on to say, they called themselves skills, these are the speculative view folks, based on how they call others fools. In claiming themselves skilled, they disrespect others who make the same claim. Drunk with conceit, thinking they're complete, by their own selves they consecrate their minds and their views. So you get the image, right? There's arrogance there. There's a drunkenness. There's another place where he talks about people roaring with conceit. This, not so surprising, it builds conflict, right? And this careless attention to the speculation as opposed to what the impact is on our own minds and hearts and on our relationships, that's the key, right? The careless versus the profound, the moment versus the stories of the mind. It's probably not a coincidence that fixed views are the final fetter, the final knot, tangle, that is said to block spiritual practitioners from full awakening. So it's significant. It's significant that that's the last to go. It's not greed. It's not hatred. It's not even the grosser form of delusion. But it's this particular, like, I'm right. Through my own speculation and brilliant theorizing, I'm right. That's the last one to go. It's kind of humbling, actually. I'm going to walk it down a little bit. This is a quote from one of 
Sayado Utejaniya's students again. Um, and this woman, quite a serious practitioner, she entered into meditating at after her brother died at 19, um, Vietnamese woman, and studied Buddhism, eventually became a nun, quite deeply practiced. And she talks about this just a little bit in her practice. It is not, she says, that easy to watch the mind. I have done things which I thought would benefit myself and others. On closer examination, though, I discovered I'd actually done them from a standpoint of superiority with a proud, conceited mind. This mind can be very complex, deceptive, cunning. Now I understand that nobody else makes me suffer. I understand the mind is chiefly responsible for causing problems. When it creates stories, talks, judges, it makes things worse by blowing them out of proportion. If I suffer, it means I've allowed myself to get involved in the stories the mind creates. If I suffer, it means I've let myself get involved and tangled in the stories my mind creates. But, she says, if I can distance myself and listen to the calm and reasonable parts of the mind, Yoniso Manasakara, the profound parts, I can let go and I can be at peace. So, that's from the practice of mindfulness will change you. So, the Buddha teaches that there are two conditions for the arising of wrong view this kind of speculative process. What to, he asks, the utterance of another person, another person's speech, and careless attention. Now, can any of you relate to this? I sure can. Right? It's so easy to take something in in a way that, like, we get reactive. Or oh, that's not right, or oh, I'm so great, or whatever it is, right? To get hooked into the utterance, the speech of another. However, that careless attention can dissolve if we take a beat. Sit with it. Notice the impact. Is the audio okay for everyone? Okay. So, in my own experience, this teaching about the utterance of another and careless attention, it definitely applies to fixed views and conflict as well as wrong view. And I'll unpack wrong view in a few minutes. But meanwhile, as a kind of transition, I have another anecdote for you. So then, this is again back in the Buddha's time. And... By that time, the Buddha had become quite an established teacher. He had, he was traveling, and they traveled by foot in ancient India pretty much, unless you were royalty and you had a chariot, right? So him and this large group of monks, and I presume nuns, were traveling along this big highway. Think huge dirt road, right? And it just happened to be that, you know, it's a main thoroughfare. So 
another student and pupil from another faith tradition, religious tradition of the time happened to be walking in the same area at the same time, maybe alongside or behind. And this, the student Brahmadatta and his teacher Supiya had been exposed to the Buddha's teachings. And they were arguing amongst themselves, the student praising the Buddha and the teachings and the monks and the teacher, maybe a little defensive or insecure, was um, harshing on it, disagreeing, being quite disrespectful. And they were all traveling together at the same time and eventually ended up in one of these, and some of the royalty would sponsor these guest houses in which wandering spiritual seekers could just stay. And so everybody ended up in the same guest house. And student and teacher continued their back and forth. And of course, at that point, there's no way the monks can't overhear some of it, right? Everybody's hanging out in the same place. And um, the next morning, I'm not sure if these two people were still around or if they left, but the, the monks were discussing, like, wow, look at this. Like, they were diametrically opposed to each other in the way they were talking about the Buddha and the teachings and us. And the Buddha joins the conversation from where he'd spent the night. And he uses this um, disparagement and this praise of him and his teachings as a teaching for them. So rather than responding, rather than getting hooked in, he says, what should you do, practitioners, when you hear a disparagement of me or the teachings or of you? In other words, what do you do when you hear someone dissing your way of life, your beliefs, what you hold dear? He said, do not give way and allow resentment, displeasure, and animosity to build up in you. Don't allow anger to take over your heart. Why? These emotions, these mind states are obstacles for you. They're obstacles in recognizing whether what's being said is true or false. So you notice he's not centering this on a sense of pride or allegiance. He's centering on this as like, is there a point there? Can I be detached enough from my own identification with something to recognize where this disparagement might have a kernel of truth in it? So instead of having an emotional being taken over by an emotional response, most of us will have one, of course. Tease out what's true from what's false. That's the first step. And then the second step is unravel and disprove the false based on truth, fact, understanding. He doesn't say defend me. He doesn't say defend yourself in this area, but rather check it out. Is there merit? Is there not merit to these claims? And then he takes on, what about when people praise what's dear to you? In other words, in this case, him and his teachings, and they praise you. What then is the wise response? And he says it's very important 
don't give way. Don't allow your heart to be overly influenced by jubilation, joy, exultation, exultion. That's an old-fashioned word, right? Um, But not to get so swept away by the good feelings that those positive words engender, because that, too, creates an obstacle. An obstacle to what? To spiritual deepening, to practice, and to whether or not what is being said is grounded. This is something that um, anyone who's been in a leadership position can probably relate to, right? Like, it's we never quite know how much of it is projection or the other person's like habitual response to a power dynamic or their wishes being projected on us. Any of those things, and it doesn't mean to um, dismiss the other person or their feelings. It's just okay. What? From that deeper place of profound attention, what's true? What's real? I can't remember who initially said this. I'm remembering a version um, the Dharma teacher Howie Cohn said of this quote. What's mine? What's yours? And what's the Dharma's? What's the universe's? Can we let it go? So this is the realm of careful, profound attention, rather than getting carelessly caught up. As I mentioned earlier, the Buddha advocates, teaches a different way fundamentally of relating to views. It's this way that's not underpinned by the need to defend, the need to be right, the need for myself to be identified with a certain thing. That is the kind of primary underpinning in early Buddhism, a wrong view is Sakaya Ditti, that the personality is the center of things, fixed, unchanging, not dependent on anything personality. So not needing to be right, not needing to defend, is a different way of relating to views entirely. And then um, in this same teaching, the Buddha talks about, well, what's wrong view then? There's the underpinning delusion of fixed, solid, eternally unchanging self, which most of us can see by looking in the mirror over the years ain't true, right? We do change. (laughs) Um, He talks about this whole net of views. This comes from the first discourse in the long discourses, the net of views. And there were many, many views that he unpacks and sort of dissects in the wake of hearing this argument between the student and the teacher about, here are things that aren't quite right. I'm not going to go through all of them. There are a lot of them, but they fit all into kind of one common ground, which is that they're speculative. They're based on speculative thinking rather than experience in the moment and interpretations of the moment in ways that aren't grounded in our experience. 
And within that, there are two broad buckets. One, speculation about the past. And the other, speculation about the future. Now, I don't know about you folks, but I think most humans, certainly I do, it's really easy to spend a lot of time in one or the other or perhaps both of these, right? How much of our time is spent predicting the future, speculating about the future? Or what did they mean when they said that? Or how come that happened? Our poor minds, we get so busy with the story making, the speculation. In the Buddha's time, his main focus, he does talk about both of these as being distractions. In this particular case, because he was, I think, talking about a discussion happening in a different spiritual tradition, he was more focused on the speculative views people develop about that. But I want you to hear this brief list with an eye towards, while in this case it was based on meditative experience or faith tradition, many of us develop these little attitudes or views in daily life too, right? Eternalism is the first one. Eternalism is this idea that the world and the self are fixed, unchanging, and always the same. Now, most of us consciously know this isn't true on a rational level, right? The world's revolving, it's rotating, seasons are happening, changes in the ecosystem are happening, changes in our bodies, our lives. It's just not always the same. How many times, though, I can say I've caught myself with this attitude of fixity, like, oh, this will never change, kind of underlying attitude. So that's a little hint of eternalism, right? Even in our scientific, dominant scientific worldview, it can happen. Even though quantum physicists tell us things are constantly moving in flux. When I look around, it's easy to see the world in fixity. Another one is um, finitude or infinity. In other words, it has to be finite or it has to be absolutely infinite. This is generally, in the Buddha's time, based on personal interpretation of meditative experience. But I like to think of it these days in my own life as an attitude of constraint, of, of limitations, of scarcity thinking, Versus, oh, it's too big to even take in or to handle, right? That circle of concern versus circle of impact. Then there's, this might be my favorite. I don't have the exact quote here, but he talks about people who endlessly equivocate and waffle. Nothing is true. Nothing is untrue. Dancing around. And it's like this waffly energy, right? Most of us have met people who are there. Some of us have been people who've been there sometimes, right? It's a form of doubt. And it's also a form of trying to make sense of the world. 
not feeling comfortable landing anywhere. So constantly waffling, dancing around. And then there's nihilism or annihilationism. And this one is tricky. Like I've definitely met quite serious Buddhists who could fall into this. It's kind of fatalism. This idea that nothing I do can change things. That actions have no consequence or that we are not capable of free will. And there are certainly people in the world who believe this. There are people who ascribe it to Buddhist teachings. The Buddha pushed back very strongly against this because the whole enterprise of spiritual practice in Buddhism is predicated, underpinned by the idea that karma, action, changes things, it changes conditions, drop by drop of water filling the bowl. It changes us. So we might not have full control over things. We certainly don't. However, there's the possibility of a little shift and then another little shift and then another little shift. And before you know it, you're moving in a completely different direction. So the nihilism, annihilationism, the nothing matters was the last important kind of category of what the Buddha called wrong view. In all cases, he really emphasized that it's based on speculation and kind of by proxy on this careless attention. Because from a dharmic point of view, once we're caught in speculation, there's already been careless attention. I already haven't noticed direct experience. So these views, they deny the efficacy of action and practice. And so they're a breeding ground for this whole host of hindrances. Right? Whether it's a sense of um, fixity, freeze, doubt, whatever it is. And the alternate, the profound attention, Yoniso Manasikara, is it's a move that's orthogonal. It's fundamentally shifting the perspective on all of these views to see views as arising mental processes, right? Rather than inhabiting it. Oh, it's an activity in the mind. It might be a slow moving activity that's been there for a long time, but it's just an activity of mind. And then the door is open to noticing the helping or hindering mental actions that are happening. One of my favorite teachings from Andrea Fella, the woman who founded this group, is um, to assign a believability index to your own views. You know, pick your own scale, one to 10, zero to 100, one to five, whatever. But just like, how sure am I that's true? And even if you're already all the way up at 10 or 100, noticing that there's a belief is a huge difference than assuming that that belief is fact. It's the way things are. So noticing that, noticing helping and hindering 
attitudes and mental actions is grounded in this understanding of conditionality. And that begins to open the door to another beautiful kind of effect of wise view, profound attention. The Buddha talks about this in a number of places. I'm going to quote here from, um, this is the Connected Discourses. Talks about based on wise view, the seven factors of awakening arise. And these are non-obstructions, non-hindrances, and non-corruptions. And they are mindfulness itself, right? They are investigation, dhamma-vichaya, curiosity, interest, energy, or sometimes courage, joy, calm, settledness, and a kind of equipoise or equanimity. So what can be helpful is to do that shift, that turn, that step back. Oh, okay. Where's the energy? Where's the positive energy in the mind in this moment? Even if it feels like what's happening isn't so positive, if, oh, wow, I just recognized, been stuck in this view, that's mindfulness. There's even a touch of wisdom there already. Right? to begin to sense into these other beautiful qualities. Because often when one is around, others are waiting in the wings. I'm going to close with a poem. This is a book of poetry based on the Terigata, the awakening utterances of the early Buddhist nuns, called the First Free Women. Its interpretation is, in my view, Beautiful interpretation. This is Genta. And she says, I was forever getting lost until one day the Buddha told me, to walk this path, you need seven friends. Mindfulness, curiosity, courageous energy, joy, calm, settledness, and equanimity. For many years, these friends and I have traveled together, sometimes wandering in circles, sometimes taking the long way around. There were days when I thought I couldn't go on. There were days when I thought I should give up. It's scary to give all of yourself to one thing. What if you don't make it? Oh, my heart, you don't have to go it alone. Train yourself to train just a little more gently. So thank you for your kind attention. So we have a few moments for questions. Sorry, I made the dialogue box go up again there. We have a few moments for questions or comments. If you would like me to pause the recording, just let me know. Otherwise, I'll leave it going. Um, sometimes some really good learning comes out. So any um, insights, questions? 
ways you've noticed this applies to your own life or doesn't? No wrong answer. Well, I would just say that um, this seems so um, relevant in today's world because um, we see all this division and conflict. So I'm really, I'm happy that Gil also was kind of going in this direction now and it's it feels very necessary. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. Yeah, it's um, it's a little bit coincidence that because I had set this theme weeks ago, um, and it's striking. Um, striking, Stuart. You also had your hand up. Yeah, I'm not sure I've got very much to say, but the the thing that gave me a lot of pause for thought is the believability index. <laughs> was my first reaction to that is, if I look closely, am I left with anything that I really know to be true? But I'm not expressing this very well. I really need to take a bit more thought. But that's what it sort of triggered. So I'm curious if, if we can unpack this just a little bit. What's your relationship to that idea? Is there anything that I hold to be true? Does it feel good or bad? Is it scary? Is it interesting? Like, how, how are you relating to it? Well, it's interesting. And I've come across something similar with philosophical thought that in a lot of branches of Western philosophy, do you really know anything? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't disturb me, but it's, it's something I'd like to think about. Yeah, yeah. I think it's great to think about. And I just want to encourage you, since my role here is as a Buddhist teacher, to also put it through the lens of the Buddha's alternate, which is conditionality. So the simplest and most incisive, or maybe not the simplest, but one of the most incisive forms of that is the Four Noble Truths, is suffering present. Is suffering arising because of this view? What are the conditions for suffering ceasing in this moment? And then to apply the Noble Eightfold Path, you've been practicing for a while now, right? Apply the practice to the question rather than only the discursive level, mental level of intelligence. Both are valid, right? Both are totally valid but to check in in direct experience, because what the Buddha advocates as an alternate is, this sense contact happened and this result happened in the mind. This condition happened and that result happened in the heart. I'm observing this and that in real time. So to just an invitation to play with toggling back and forth between those things, in addition to giving it thought. Does that sound all right? Yeah, thank you. Yes, I'm perhaps sometimes too inclined to veer towards the intellect and away from the heart. So. 
Yeah. So, yes. that's so Thank you. You're most welcome. And many of us are, right? This is a deeply human, especially modern human tendency. So you're in good company. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We have just a minute left of our formal time together. Any last quick comments, questions? I have to ask Stuart um, what part of Scotland he's from. I, I, He sounds just like I remember my grandfather, who was from Aberdeen, Peterhead. Uh, I'm from West Central Scotland, originally Glasgow, so a long way from Aberdeen. Still Scotland, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So, friends, I'm going to um, dedicate the merit, and I'll stay on for a few minutes if anyone wants informal and non-recorded time to chat, okay? Um, so... May our practice here together be a cause and conditioning for the deepening of wisdom, compassion, kindness, and peace in our hearts and in all the hearts and lives we touch. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings know the highest joy of freedom. And may we, our practice, be one of the causes and conditions for greater freedom and peace in the world. Thank you for your practice, everyone. It's good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.